The PGA and Live Golf League joined forces, but the players on the tour weren't kept in the loop? How is this possible? The fallout and aftermath of the past couple of days? What does this mean for the game of golf overall and the players who remain loyal throughout it all? A record-setting performance by Denver's dynamic duo has them two games away from the title. Will the Heat rebound to tie the series? Can the Panthers recapture some of their earlier postseason magic to get back in the Stanley Cup Finals? Jacob deGrom's 2023 season is over as he needs Tommy John surgery again. Sad to hear, but am I surprised? The French Open inches closer to a final, but the semis are next, which means the match we've all been waiting for, and news about Lionel Messi as he could be this generation's Pele? You'll get the answers to all that and much more as another podcast comes your way. It's all coming up, but first, this message. J Reels here just passing by to send a brief reminder to please subscribe, rate, review this podcast, the J Reels podcast, on wherever you listen to your podcast, whether it's on Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox, all of the major platforms that are out there, whichever one that you listen to, once again, just throw me a few stars, write a review, I would greatly appreciate it just to increase the visibility of this podcast with all the others that are out there, especially this one, which covers all sports in roughly one hour. Where else are you going to get that? So if you can go ahead and please do that, I would sincerely and gratefully appreciate it. And with that said, let's get it. The J Reels Podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it. He is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J-Rules Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, Michael? People, greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's doing well, feeling fantastic, in excellent spirits. Another weekend is on the horizon. Hopefully all the wildfires from Canada have made their way out of here, especially in the Northeast where I live. But making my way into your consciousness with all that's going on in the world of sports is yours truly as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host, J Reels. For my first-timers, welcome aboard. And for those who have been banging with me going back to the very beginning, somewhere in the middle or even as early as this past Monday, I welcome you guys and gals back. And yes, the last 24 to 48 hours have been somewhat out of a movie. Especially yesterday, when you look at the skies here in New York, whether it was an auburn color, brown, even red, I felt like I was Matt Damon in The Martian. That's how just weird the skies, just Manhattan taken over by the Canadian wildfires in Nova Scotia, how for whatever the reason, the jet stream came south as opposed to maybe going north and east, making New York City look like a movie set. But I'm fine. I know there was a lot of concern about whether or not this smoke was going to affect a lot of the people that live here in the tri-state area. And it affected, I believe, what, 100 million people. But at one point, I read that New York City had the second worst air quality in the world, which when you read it from that perspective, it's like, oh, geez, should I be indoors? Should I not? And I was actually out and about yesterday. And as weird as this is going to sound, even being indoors, when you feel the smoke come into 
the building, it does make you a little leery and worrisome about how can I run for cover if I'm already undercover, if you know what I mean. So, yeah, just a strange time, strange world we live in with all that's going on. And that's obviously another podcast for another day, especially when it comes to what's happening globally, when it comes to the climate, things of that nature. But I know you guys and gals are here for sports and let's get right to it. And I'm going to start off, no, not with the NBA Finals last night. No, not with the Stanley Cup Finals resuming tonight. The baseball, which I'll touch on a little bit later. Even Lionel Messi. That's when you know I'm going to have a podcast that's going to be all over the map in a good way. But I'm going to start off with what happened in golf because the last 48 hours has been very telling. And so much to unpack and so many different directions and angles that I'll try to put it in one tidy box. Just knowing that the Live Golf League, I know I mentioned they joined forces, which they did. As many people have called this a merger, really what this is, is an acquisition. Going to the Saudis, the big head honcho who is going to oversee and obviously finance this whole thing. And you know me with names, people. I'm probably going to end up butchering it. But when we have the PGA Tour Commissioner, Jay Monahan behind closed doors with Yasir al-Rumavian, or Rumayan, who is the governor of Saudi Arabia's Sovereign Wealth Fund, that finance live golf. And when you get these guys in a room and come out on Tuesday to talk about how they've merged or how they have joined forces as well as the DP World Tour to now be under one umbrella, one entity, there's no more live golf versus PGA, none of it. And when I saw the breaking news come through late Tuesday morning, the first thing I thought of was, when the hell did this all take place? And you know me. Golf is somewhere in the middle to even below my radar. Of course, when the four majors come up or if there's a big story that happens in golf, you know I'm going to bring it to the airwaves. But for this to happen, a groundbreaking, shocking revelation to think that Jay Monahan, for everything that he had said going back a year ago when a lot of these players on the tour were defecting to live golf, talking about, oh, how could they just turn their backs on the PGA, the history, the tradition, the classic golf courses, Pebble Beach, Augusta, we could go through them all and just take the money and run, or even worse, talking about how the Saudi money is blood money, how they're sports washing golf and maybe even some other sports, including soccer, as we've heard here over not only just the last few days, but even going back to the... World Cup last year, and him just thumbing his nose at Live Golf, and a lot of people did that, and even to a certain extent I did, because here was this one entity that was trying to see what they could do to make a name for themselves just by throwing money at the Dustin Johnsons, the Bryson DeChambeau's, the Phil Mickelson's, we all know that this was spearheaded by Greg Norman, who was a big part of this, and yes, at first, we were appalled by it, but then as time went on, and we saw a lot of the top players defect, those aforementioned players, including Cam Smith, is another guy. And then we kind of looked at this saying, well, at some point this is going to come to a head where who knows if the PGA is going to capitulate? Who knows if the PGA was going to just say, all right, if we can't beat them because there's no way that we could come up with anything close to the money that the Saudis can. So if we could somehow, some way get them in the room and meet up and hammer out a deal, then great, so be it. 
And as we saw there Tuesday morning, the news breaking about how the PGA and Liv are now in bed with one another, which public enemy number one is Jay Monahan, and he's low-hanging fruit. It's easy to crucify him and call him a snake, backstabber, hypocrite, and he's taking it and owning up to it. And I know it's got to be tough for him, and I'm not going to be an apologist for him by any stretch of the imagination, but I know it's got to be tough because, yes, that whole philosophy, if you can't beat him, join him, and knowing that he has taken a turn from what he said a year, 14, 15 months ago, yeah, he looks like an idiot. And when the news came out that a lot of the players on the tour were not informed, in particular Rory McIlroy, who Tuesday morning at around 6 a.m. got the call that this was going to happen. So it's not as if any of the players on the tour were informed that, hey guys, this is coming down the pike, and I just want you to know that we're going to announce this on this day, this time, whatever. And you got to remember, golf is different from the major sports when it comes to these leagues because a lot of the leagues have unions where golf doesn't have that. Now they have a board, but there isn't a players union as you have in baseball led by Tony Clark or the NFL led by DeMora Smith. You don't have a scenario where these players are going to have a guy at the top to talk with the commissioner, Jay Monahan, to say, hey, what the hell's going on here? We're against this or this needs to be brought to our attention. That's not the case. These are all independent contractors. These are all guys that, right, out of respect, so they have been informed better than two hours prior to this being announced, 100%. And this is where Monahan looks like a fool. But because there's no union, and because the players were in the dark, and I'm sure you saw all the comments there, whether it was on social media or in print, about how this is preposterous, how could Jay Monahan do this, so on and so forth. And even Rory McIlroy came out yesterday, and I'll just talk about him for a second, because by mentioning two hours before that the word was coming out that Liv and the PGA were going to join and be a part of one, that McElroy in his press conference yesterday said that he still sticks by Jay Monahan and still has confidence in him to do what's right, which I find that very surprising because if Monahan went a, not necessarily against the players and in particular Roy McElroy to make this deal, but I'm sure there has to be a little bit of betrayal on his part knowing that instead of apprising the guys on the tour that, hey, we've been talking about this for quite some time or giving them an idea or even a heads up to some degree. And even though Monahan in his press conference said that, well, a lot of this was tight-lipped, a lot of this couldn't be brought to the players. This was something that had been talked about for weeks. I believe it was weeks and leading up to this moment. So it's not as if that we could have gotten everybody together in the room or on conference calls, Zoom, etc. to say, hey, keep this mum. Don't let the word get out. And I understand he had to keep this close to the vest so the word didn't get out. But one more time, he doesn't look good. And even with McElroy saying that, one more time, a little bit surprised that he took that tact. I understand he's not going to slaughter Monahan because at the end of the day, McElroy did come out and say that this is going to be good for the game of golf, but he still hates Liv. And what he means by that, because when I saw the headline that he still hates Liv, even after everything was said and done and the dust settled on this deal, I thought to myself, how could he still hate Liv if this has already been hammered out and the I's dotted and T's crossed? 
But he doesn't like the format of live, the 54 holes, the playing with shorts, no cuts, things of that nature. So as far as the rules and hoping that whatever Liv had over the past year, that the PGA is not going to implement any of those things when it comes to their tournaments being affected. And then you also had the DP World Tour talking about how that the players that were on Liv, they're not going to participate in the Ryder Cup. And I get it, the Ryder Cup is the fifth major, and the Ryder Cup is going to take place in Rome later on in the fall. But you know... With a few months between now and then, something's going to give to where those players, the ones that are currently on the Live Tour, they're going to play, I would think, in the Ryder Cup. So, to me, that's much to do about nothing. So now the bigger question is, what is golf going to look like moving forward? Especially when it comes to the money that I'm sure a lot of the golfers who didn't jump ship to go to Live and remain loyal and stood intact and stood their ground to now have these guys such as Dustin Johnson and Phil Mickelson come. And I understand whatever money that they were promised, I'm sure it was in installments. It wasn't just one big fat paycheck that went directly into their direct deposit. But there are going to be some, and I'm sure more of the rank and file, to think that, hey, I could have made 20, 30, 40, 50 million, and now that live and PGA coalesces one, what does that mean for me? Or what does that mean for the guy who is ranked 135th in the world? That's probably going to get pushed out or maybe even pushed aside because of the live golfers now being under the same umbrella. And you even had a guy like Will Zalatoris who turned down $100 million to go play for live golf as was released a couple days ago. And how he turned that down. But now what does that mean for me? Now that we're one entity. And that's a very good question. And even though there's been some factions. More so the live golfers. Bryson DeChambeau saying it's the best thing for golf. And of course he's going to say that. I was even surprised Jack Nicholas Said the same thing. That whatever we could do to get the game of golf. Elevated. Then I'm all for it. But he was one of the first guys in line. That was killing Greg Norman. And killing the whole live golf league. And now that he's changed his tune, and we know Jack Nicholas, what is he, 80-something years old? And you would think that he would have had a more get-off-my-lawn approach. Now, maybe that showed a little bit of growth on his part, so I, I have to give him a little bit of credit on that. But we know how staunch he was as far as Live Golf being a part of this new league and a part of the golf landscape and how he was totally against it. And then now all of a sudden it's like, hey, I'm breaking out the Live Golf pom-poms because of what golf is going to do from here on out. And I get it. There's going to be a lot of people and we're going to have to wait and see as early as next week because we have the U.S. Open which will be played a week from today and who knows what type of after effect it's going to have when it comes to interviewing some of these players especially the ones that are on the PGA Tour. Obviously we haven't heard from Tiger yet. I'm sure a lot of people are curious to know what he has to say about all this. And there still haven't been a lot of golfers that have come out publicly to express their feelings about this whole acquisition. And again, it's only been a couple of days. Based on what I could gather, everybody's trying to, I'll go as far as saying, toe the company line. Yes, you've had some comments that have been outspoken. 
and you have some that have just been taking the high road. But I'm sure as we move further away from this, and I would think next week is going to be the big week because it is the U.S. Open week. I'm sure there are going to be a lot of golfers that will probably either be vociferous or maybe even tight-lipped about the whole thing. But considering now Jay Monahan, who is the CEO, he's not going to be the guy that's going to overlook everything. He's the guy that's going to report to that Yasir Al-Rumayan figurehead who's the one that's going to be, as well as the PIF, the Public Investment Fund, that's going to finance this whole thing. And who knows how long he's going to be the CEO of this now, whatever you want to call it, PGA Live, Live PGA, who knows what the tour is going to look like or what it's going to be called when it's all said and done. But the one thing I will say at this very moment, is it good for golf? I understand the philosophy, as I mentioned earlier, if you can't beat him, join him. And yes, there's a lot of truth to that. But you kind of knew this was coming. So was I shocked to hear the news when it came out there on Tuesday? Absolutely. Because nobody who follows sports or is in tune to what's gone on there over the last 14 months expected that to happen without any rumblings, rumors, etc. But as it sunk in, and when you really think about it, am I appalled? Am I shocked? Am I just flabbergasted by it? No. It was just a matter of time. But the time came at a point where it just blindsided me and everybody on the tour and sports fans, media, etc. alike. And now we'll get to see firsthand come Monday when the scene will shift to another major, the third one of the year. And I'm sure there's going to be microphones everywhere and media just coming down. I don't even know off the top of my head where the... U.S. Open is going to be played, but that golf course and that venue is going to be bombarded to get a quote, to get anything, to find out how a lot of these PGA players really truly feel and how much will they even reveal or even answer to. Because I would think inside privately, they're probably feeling a certain type of way, but they don't want to show that publicly. So we'll have to wait and see come next week when the buzz will start to build heading into next Thursday when the first round of the U.S. Open begins. All right, now let me put on my high tops and we'll talk some NBA Finals. Last night, Game 3 in the books. And if you're the Miami Heat, and I'll get into them a little bit more later on because this is more about Denver than is Miami, but if you're the Heat, you are on your heels right now because if you're going to get the performance that you got last night or anything close to what we saw out of Nikola Jokic and Jamal Murray. This could be a tidy five-game series. And as we saw there in game two, where Jokic only had four assists and their defense was deplorable there, especially in that fourth quarter. Last night, in that first half, I thought this was a game that Miami Heat were thriving on. They were only down by five. The score was 53-48. And the one thing I thought to myself was, This is the type of game that they want to play. And then from that point on, the second half, it was lights out. The Nuggets took over. They started to not only play good defense, but Jokic got even more involved as far as the offensive flow of the game. Jamal Murray, 34-10-10. Jokic, 34, oh, what do you have? No, excuse me, 32-21-10. And you also had sprinkling a little Christian Braun off the bench who had 15 points in 19 minutes, 7 for 8 from the field. 
And the Nuggets, they avenged that poor performance in the fourth quarter at home to a resounding 109-94 victory. Were in control in that second half. They had a 21-point lead there late in the third quarter. And the Heat had no answers. Jimmy Butler, Bam Adebayo both had good games and not really shoot well from the floor. Butler had thought had a better first half than the second half. Adebayo did not shoot, although he had 17 rebounds on top of that to boot. But when you have Gabe Vincent come crashing back to earth, and I get it, he's allowed to have a bad game, so I can't get on him. But he was 2 for 10 from the field, made one three-point shot. Caleb Martin, another game where he did nothing and has been exposed here, which to the chagrin of me being a Celtic fan, just, ugh! Stokes my flames because this is what we would have seen from Caleb Martin in the previous series, but we're getting it here in the finals. And when you're not getting a lot from your supplementary players, even Kevin Love, and I understand Love is not going to give you that much as far as scoring. He's going to give you more passing, some three-point shooting, but Max Drews, again, another bad performance by him. And when the Heat are going to have that type of offensive output from those type of players... This is the result you're going to get. And even Jimmy Butler said in the postgame how they need to up their energy. They did not play with that same heat intensity and the fight that they usually play with, the chip on the shoulder, the toughness, etc., where Denver just did whatever they could on the basketball court, and it showed by them just dominating that second half and taking over, which now leads to the Miami Heat on whether or not that they could come back in a game four. I think they can, and I even think they will. But will they win the game? That's a whole other story. Denver, as we've talked about here, ad infinitum, this is a team that when they absolutely had to win the game or win a game in this postseason, they showed up and showed out. As we saw in game six against Phoenix, as we saw in the two games against LA when the Lakers were charging, and looking like they had a possibility to win a game, because as we all know, those games were touch and go and tooth and nail down the stretch. And then the way they performed there yesterday, Denver, they knew that they didn't want to go down 2-1 where all the pressure would have been squarely on them. Now it's all on the Miami Heat. Denver could pretty much play loosey-goosey, and now you got to wonder whether or not the Heat not only are going to get the complimentary players to elevate their game, but also to get the physicality, the intensity, everything that I've talked about in order for them to get to Denver tied at two. And I think they're going to play a lot better. Now, like I said, the first half was pretty much Miami Heat basketball. They were within five. It was low scoring first half overall, but they can't let that happen in the second half where Denver's just going to dictate what they do offensively not be able to get up on Jokic, or if anything, make Jokic shoot the ball the way they did in game two and not distribute, not get his other teammates involved. And as it was, you had both Murray and Jokic, first time ever in NBA Finals history, or I believe in even playoff history, to where you had two teammates have triple doubles. No, maybe it's Finals history, not playoff history. And the first time in Finals history where you saw a player get 30 points, 20 rebounds, and a triple double overall, And that's Jokic. And the Heat are up against it. They know that they need to win game four because I don't care what they've done to get to this point. I know that they have been phenomenal throughout this whole stretch going back to the 
plain scenario against the Bulls. But if they go down 3-1, there is no way that they're going to win the series. And I'm not going out on a limb by saying that, people, but you could talk about heat culture, you could talk about everything that we've discussed here over the last, however long it's been, six, seven weeks. The Nuggets are the team to beat. And I said that even going back to when they swept the Lakers, and it didn't matter if the Celtics or the Heat were going to come out of the East. I thought that the Nuggets by far were the best team. And yes, they had a hiccup there in Game 2, and last night they showed and flexed their muscles why not only were they the best team in the West, but they're showing why they could be the upcoming champions when it's all said and done. So I think the Heat, they're going to battle, and I think they'll be in this game, but I don't know if they're going to be able to pull through. They're going to have to play from in front. I don't know if you're going to get any fourth quarter magic that you saw there against Denver in Game 2, or in the previous series, whether it's against the Celtics, or even before that, when they came back, what was it, 102-89 with six minutes to go in Game 4 against the Bucks. And they won that game where Jimmy Butler scored 56. They're going to need that type of performance in order for them to get to a game five tied 2-2. That's all there is to it. Do they have it in them? I don't know. We know their track record and what they've done to this point, but Denver, after last night's performance, I don't know if they could taste it, but I think they could smell it. And that's what you have with the finals. And we'll talk about Game 4 on Monday, because that's the only game between now and then. Because it's Friday, then Monday in Denver. So, come Monday, we'll go over what happened in Game 4. And we just hope it's competitive. I think it'd be great if the Heat does win, only because at least you'll have a little bit of drama going into Game 5. But if it's 3-1, I'm sure a lot of people are going to tune out. And it's going to be a coronation in Denver, you would think, come Monday night, if they're up 3-1. Now as I lace up my skates to go to the Stanley Cup Finals, and all I got to do is just go from Biscayne Boulevard, skate across the, I think that's the 836, up the 826 to 595 to go to Sunrise, because Game 3, as the Stanley Cup Finals will resume tonight, and what we saw there on Monday night was an absolute bludgeoning, where the Vegas Golden Knights were able to not only put it on the Florida Panthers, but took him to the back of the woodshed to where I know Carter Vergate had that breakaway there early in the first period. Who knows what that would have done as far as to change the complexion early on as far as Florida getting a one nothing lead. But as it was, the Vegas Golden Knights got two goals there in the first, followed by two more goals in the second. I know he had the big hit there with Matthew Kachuk on Jack Eichel, which caused the scrum. And... Kachuk even said in the postgame that they're confident in their physicality, that that's not going to change. We're going to continue to play that way. And he also got into it with the goaltender Aiden Hill early on in the contest. But then even with the Panthers finally getting on the board to make it 4-1, to one, the Golden Knights were able just to turn on the Jets. They end up winning 7-2. So the Panthers have their tails between their legs Monday night flying back to South Florida. And even though the next two games are in their building... And the confidence is still there and they feel as if as long as they can take care of their home ice and go back to Vegas 2-2, then it's a toss-up as to how the series could turn on a dime. But here's the problem with that and all the confidence and all the bravado is great. And you would only hope, based on what they've done here throughout the course of this postseason, yes, all they could do is think back to being down 3-1 against the Bruins and we talked about how the Bruins had that epic regular season and how that went up in smoke mainly because of 
what Florida had done over games 5, 6, and 7. But I don't think Vegas is built the way the Bruins were. And as it was, the Bruins did have a 3-1 series lead and it just dissipated, so it showed the type of backbone the Bruins had. And even though Vegas in the previous round had a 3-0 series lead and they let Dallas come back 3-2 to play a game 6 on the road in Dallas, and we saw what happened there, a 6-0 shutout. But I think Vegas, similar to Denver, front runners all year, one seed out west, and not to say that they could smell or even taste it, but they know that as long as they just get one of the next two here, that the series in all likelihood is going to be over. And the Panthers could talk about everything that has happened up to this point. They could go back to that series against Boston. They could talk about them beating Toronto in five and a sweep against Carolina and the Magic Carpet Riders I've talked about time after time. But right now, that Magic Carpet Ride has hit a snag. And that carpet is being pulled by Vegas to where the fabric is starting to fall apart here. That maybe it's starting to slowly but surely come to, I don't want to go as far as saying the crash landing, but yes, the air is starting to be sucked out of that magic carpet ride, and if the Panthers do not win these next two games, because I'm not expecting two 3-1 miracles if Vegas wins one of these next two games, but I think that their magic is starting to run out here, because Vegas, they're that good, and B, I'm not even going to go about the layoff, about how that's maybe even hurt Florida, because now that's over and done with. You're two games into the series, and yes, they had a shot there in game one, tied 2-2, and we saw how that all unfolded. But now, it is do or die. In order for the Panthers to have any shot, they have to win these next two games. That's all there is to it. And tonight, with Sergei Bobrovsky, who did not play well, who gave up some bad goals there in game two, and that was the one thing that we banked on throughout this whole postseason, whether or not Bobrovsky was going to stand and deliver. And he did so for three rounds. Give him all the credit in the world. But now, he's sprung a couple of leaks. And he's going to start in Game 3 tonight, which is the right move. Because he's the guy that's carried you throughout, not only the stretch of the regular season where they had to get into the postseason, but throughout these first three rounds. And you're not going to pull what Jim Montgomery did Bruins game seven by inserting Jeremy Swayman instead of Linus Ulmark, the guy who carried you through the whole regular season and pretty much the first six games of the first round. And now you're going to start tinkering with lineups and panic moves by putting in Swayman to where if they brought in the backup for Florida, that all of a sudden that's going to change the dynamic of the series. Uh-uh, uh-uh. I think Paul Maurice is doing the right thing by putting in Bobrovsky, but I'm sure he's going to have a very short leash. And that's going to be the one play of the watch tonight is how Bobrovsky starts and how he performs in this game. Because if they go down one nothing or even 2 nothing early on, the roof may cave in. So that's one that we're going to have to watch here tonight especially because he's going to be the guy that the spotlight's going to be on on whether or not he's going to be able to keep his team in the game or if Florida takes a lead that he's going to keep that lead and not give up the soft goal or not give up the big rebound and the puck gets put to the back of the net. None of that. He's going to have to go back to his flawless self of the Toronto-Carolina series and not have any hiccups here. That's not to say he has to be perfect. That's not to say he has to pitch a shutout. But he can't give up that label reader type goal or the very soft goal. Uh Uh-uh. That he cannot do. 
Because then Vegas will start to smell it. And then the next thing you know, they'll taste it. And that'll be curtains for the Panthers at that point. All right, now let me lace up the cleats, get in the batter's box and talk a little baseball. And you had a couple of postponements yesterday from the very top with the wildfires that had taken place in Canada, how it's affected the Northeast where the Yankee game against the White Sox was postponed to a doubleheader today starting at 4.05. And I believe the same for Detroit and Philadelphia as that game was postponed as well. As a matter of fact, I think that was a two-game series. So because they both had a day off today, they're going to play this afternoon. So the effects of what had taken place north of the border has impacted Major League Baseball in that regard. So those games will be made up today. But the big news coming out of baseball, and got a lot of different storylines here, some with injuries, some with what's going on with the, on the diamond. And the first thing, Jacob deGrom, I know that that is a big blow for the Texas Rangers. We know the type of season that they've had. They're 40-21, and 21, five games ahead of the Astros in a loss column. And we understand that deGrom hasn't pitched since April 28th, and it looked like it was going to be a long road back as far as unknown to when he was going to pitch again, whether that meant that they were going to put him on the shelf to the All-Star break or when he was going to be 100% ready. But even with him feeling fine with bullpen sessions and trying to get him back acclimated to throwing and getting back to a program to where he could get back on the diamond and get on the mound and tow the rubber to start a game at any point this year, not going to happen. He's going to need a second Tommy John surgery. He's done until, you would think, at least August of next year. DeGrom was emotional. If you watch the press conference, talking about how he wanted to battle with these guys, he wanted to be there, considering the type of season that they've gotten off to. And that's just a just tough luck and a tough break. And I'm not going to sit here and say, I told you so. I'm not going to sit here and say that, oh, I knew this was going to happen. How the hell do we know that he was going to end up getting another Tommy John surgery? Nobody knew that was going to happen. But I will say this. When the Rangers offered him that money, and even prior to that, knowing that the Mets weren't going to re-sign him, because I believe they signed Verlander first before Jacob DeGrom signed with the Rangers. So even when that happened, I knew that, hey, there's no way I'm signing this guy to $180 million, $200 million, whatever the price tag was going to be. Because of his injury history, because him not pitching from July 2021 to, what was it, I guess July 2022, and he had those starts in the latter part of the year, and had the one postseason start against the Padres. But this is the reason why I didn't want to give him all that money and years just because he was arguably the second greatest pitcher in the history of the franchise. And his injury history was just too much, at least for me as a fan, for me to look at and say, you know what, I'll let's just bring him back for sentimental sake. Uh-uh. And that's the one thing. I'm able to differentiate my feelings for a player and a scenario knowing that injury history that he had to say, and his age, which is going to be 35, I believe, later this month, that it was going to be just too much to even think about knowing that if this guy does get hurt, and as we see, he's gotten hurt, and having to sit with that. Now, I understand it's not my money, and Steve Cohen is the wealthiest owner in Major League Baseball, but still... I don't want to be hamstrung with a guy that's going to be on the shelf despite the fact that he's won two Cy Youngs, a rookie of the year, etc. And was your longest tenured Met prior to him leaving. I thought that when the writing was on the wall and it was time for him to go, I was like, Jake, thanks for the memories. And look what happened. It's unfortunate. 
You don't want to see players get hurt. You don't want to see them, especially a guy like that who has been just one of the top pitchers in baseball over the years. You want to see him pitch. You want to see him perform. And even if it's in a different uniform, different league, etc. But Texas, they haven't won anything. Let's see if Jacob DeGrom would have been that guy to carry him to the mountaintop. But as at least for 2023, that's not going to be the case. And then you have a couple other injuries that are big in the sport. Aaron Judge, who did not play in that Sunday night finale because of him crashing into the wall at Chavez Ravine. IL for 10 days. Who knows how severe it is? You would think he's going to come back from that. Hopefully it's nothing too severe to where it's good. he's going to be out for any length of time. But that's something to monitor, especially a Yankee team that has played a lot better here over the course of the last month and trying to get themselves on track to the point where they could possibly make a push for the AL East. And they still have a ways to go and have a couple of teams ahead of them, in particular Baltimore and obviously Tampa. But with them being seven in the loss and Tampa continuing to play at a torrid clip, they've won five straight. And the Yankees are going to have a double dip today, so let's see how they fare. They lost a game there the other night against the White Sox. So between he and even Nestor Cortez, another guy who has been hamstrung with injuries, now he has a shoulder strain, so that's something to keep in mind too if you're a Yankee fan. With the rotation not being up to snuff other than Garrett Cole, Clark Schmidt has been wildly inconsistent and has been more bad than good. Luis Severino, who knows? He could be the guy that could... Pitch one good game, but he's going to give you one bad one. So he's going to be consistent on that level as we saw him getting racked around there last Friday night in Dodger Stadium. And where else are you going to go to get a guy that you're going to rely on if Cortez is going to be out for any significant amount of time? If it's just going to be Cole and hope to pray with your fingers crossed that you could scotch tape and bubble gum this together. But the Yankees are going to be fine. Only because they're going to be a team at the end of the day, whether they win a division or not, they're going to be in the playoffs. All you hope for is that your ducks are in a row come October to where you have all your guns and all your big arms ready to go. And that's all you could ask for if you're a Yankee fan. So, But with Cortez out, that's going to hamper them a little bit, especially in the rotation. And with Judge, we'll have to wait until, I guess, sometime middle of next week to see whether or not he'll be back. Now, a couple of things I want to touch on. One... You have a hitter in Major League Baseball as of this very second who is batting over 400. He plays on a team that is on no one's radar. He plays in a city that right now is pretty much forgotten only because two of the teams that are in that city are currently in an NBA and Stanley Cup final. But Luis Arias, who was part of that trade with the Minnesota Twins for Pablo Lopez and won a batting crown in the American League last year and could be the first player since 1900 if he does so in both leagues in back-to-back years. But Arias, who's now batting 403. And listen, we still have 100 games to go here in this baseball season. Or to be exact, if you're following the Marlins, they played 63 games. So they have 99 games to go. There's no way he's going to hit 400. I only bring it up now because it's a story because how many players over the last 20, 30 years, if you're not named Tony Gwynn or even Wade Boggs for that matter, have hit 400 in the month of June? I think Len Dykstra one year, no, John Olerud, I remember one year, I believe in 93, I thought Len Dykstra only because that was the same year that they went to the World Series with the Phillies, where he was batting 400 in the middle of June. And as we know, Tony Gwynn batted 394 when the strike came in 1994. And that was 
getting to the middle of August, if you recall, when the strike came down was August 11th. But Arias, who is a singles hitter, not a sexy offensive player. He doesn't hit for power. He doesn't hit line drives all over the ballpark. He's more or less Ichiro Suzuki. Now, Suzuki had more power, even had more speed. But we know Suzuki was famous for the infield hit and got his slap singles and was a punch and judy hitter for the most part throughout his career. And I'm not comparing Arias to Ichiro Suzuki. Suzuki's going to be a Hall of Famer. But you got to give it up to what he's done as a guy on a team that has very little offense and provides not a lot of spark other than getting on base, which is critical and is a key point of trying to score runs in baseball. But for a guy who doesn't walk much, who doesn't have a lot of speed, doesn't have a lot of power, but is batting over 400, you got to give him credit to this point. But wake me up in September if he's batting close to, at, or over 400, then pinch me or let me know at that time and we'll discuss. And that is still three months away. So I can't get wrapped up about this stretch, although give him credit, and it's great to see a batter hitting 400 here in June, but to really take it seriously, let's see this happen, even August. I won't even give you September. If he's batting this on August 8th, then let's take notice. And even then, you still have two months left of a season for him to try to eclipse 400, which hasn't been done since Ted Williams' 406 many, many, many moons ago. And then the Cincinnati Reds brought up this prospect, Ellie De La Cruz, who is a third baseman. I also believe he plays shortstop too. And yesterday he hit his first home run of his major league career over Noah Syndergaard, which I believe is still traveling in orbit somewhere. Hit it 458 feet. And I'm not into the stat cast numbers. He had the hardest hit double as a rookie. I mean, please, seriously, we're going to talk about how he has the hardest hit or hardest double. I, that's just preposterous if you ask me. I'm sorry. But this is a guy that may be able to take baseball by storm here. And for him to hit a double, and I believe he had two hits in the game yesterday, including that home run, and he's a guy that maybe could add some life to baseball. And not to say baseball needs life, but as I talked about a couple weeks ago, baseball's kind of been in this, I don't want to say holding pattern, and even though with the rules and the speed of the game and all that, it has enhanced the game times 10, But it's not as if baseball's had a ton of storylines this year. Yes, the Rays have gotten off to a great start, but the Rays aren't a national team. The Rays aren't a team that people are going to wrap their arms around despite them being a small market and have a small market value, small market principles, and for them to have the record that they have, being the best team in baseball, that's a story into itself. But still, nobody's going to gravitate to the Tampa Bay Rays. Or... Nobody's going to gravitate to the Baltimore Orioles, although the Orioles have a lot more history and great history in that town. But they're going to want to see that in October, let alone the regular season. For whatever the reason, baseball hasn't really had a ton of just juicy storylines. And having Arias hit 400 and bringing up a kid like Ellie De La Cruz, who I understand it wasn't on a lot of people's radar because he plays for the Reds. He doesn't play for the Dodgers, the Yankees, the Red Sox, the Mets. He's not that high-profile type of prospect that the average sports fan is going to want to keep on his radar. But I bring him up because of what he's done here in these first two games, and the kid has been lights out. And has a gun for an arm, speed, power, has the whole package. So I bring him up now because maybe this is a player that we could pay attention to and maybe could be on a fast track, although he's been brought up here in the early part of June, to maybe being a Rookie of the Year candidate. Now, again, it's two games. 
I understand Jerry Reels pumped the brakes. Let's not get crazy. 100%. But what he's done in his first two games doesn't make a career or make him be a Rookie of the Year candidate. But he's now been put on notice. So let's see what he does here. 21 years of age. Big time prospect. I believe he's rated number one in Major League Baseball just recently. And now he's gotten his career off to a flying start. And that's the only reason why I bring it up. Because besides that, baseball, we talked about a little bit on Monday with some of these teams and how they performed here. You know, the Pirates have hung tight, although they lost their last two and bad enough. Come on, you lose two in a row at home to the A's. Now, you did win the first game, but you lost the series and you lost 11-2 and 9-5. So it's not as if you lost close games here to the worst team in the sport. So that's not a good job by Pittsburgh, although give them credit, they're still hanging around where they're just a game and the loss behind the Brewers in the division, a game and a half overall. Arizona now is a two-game lead based on the Dodgers stubbing their toe, not only with the back end of that series against the Yankees, but the first two games against the Reds, as we talked about. So the D-backs have a two-game lead over the Dodgers as we speak. We talked about Texas and their four-and-a-half game lead. Tampa, five and a loss, six-and-a-half in the East. So that's what we have there in baseball. So we'll continue to keep our eyes on that. And let's take a quick look. Schedule this weekend. Any matchups. I'm not going to get into the Mets people. Mets have lost the first two in Atlanta. I've already talked enough about the Mets. Let's see what they do tonight as well into the weekend where they go to Pittsburgh, by the way. So that's going to be interesting. More so for the Mets, a test for them than it is for Pittsburgh. So we'll keep our eyes on that. But as far as any interesting matchups over the weekend, Texas at Tampa, that's one to watch. Who knows? Maybe that's a little ALCS preview. In June, I know, a big stretch, but still. The Dodgers come to Philadelphia, two teams that are more so Philly scuffling than L.A., but that's a series to keep an eye on. Red Sox-Yankees, I understand that's always going to be front and center, but doesn't have the same luster that it did many moons ago. Minnesota at Toronto, eh. Houston at Cleveland, eh. What else do we have? Other than that, that's pretty much what you got as far as anything that's Sexy, Seattle at LA, the Angels, eh. Maybe got a couple of series there that we'll sink our teeth into over the weekend and talk about on Monday, but that's what you have there in baseball. Couple of things to wrap up. As far as the French Open, not a lot of drama again. I know we've talked about this on Monday, and even to get to this right now, where Iga Swiatek, she's on the verge of another title, and I think she's going to win it all again. She beat Coco Goff there, who they matched up in the... French Open final last year. She beat her in straight sets. So she's going to have an easy path. Ange Jabor was out as she lost to Beatrice Haddad Maya. There as Maya will play in the semis, I believe, against Switek. But she's going to be a big favorite to win that tournament, which will be back-to-back for her. But we all know where you're going to have the semifinal matchup between Novak Djokovic and Carlos Alcaraz. So right now... You have Alexander Zverev and Kasper Ruud in the one half of the semifinal. And then you have Djokovic and Alcaraz in the other semifinal matchup. And as we all know, that is going to be, you would think, whoever whomever comes out of that, chances are could be your French Open winner. And that will take place tomorrow afternoon. And that is one that I'm going to have on my radar to see the young gun versus the old guard and how that's going to play out. Which... If you're a sports fan, that's something that you'd want to pay attention to. So that's number one. So French Open overall, not a lot of juice, 
Not a lot of luster. Everything's going to be banked on that match tomorrow with Djokovic and Alcaraz, and we'll see how that plays out. Two other quickies. The Belmont, I know it's Saturday. Because there's no Triple Crown threat or Triple Crown attempt, it's an afterthought. I'm only bringing it up because it is the final leg of the Triple Crown, and there's obviously no Triple Crown, so let's see how that's going to play out. I'll probably spend 60 seconds, if that, on Monday as to who wins. So we have that to discuss. And then finally, Lionel Messi. We know that the immortal player, and we talked about him in December when it came to the World Cup, him being that immortal Mount Rushmore soccer player of all time, and he's not going to take his talents and stay in the La Liga and play over there. And this is someone who is not well-versed or even any-versed when it comes to that. But the reason why I bring up Messi is because he has chosen to play with Inter-Miami of the MLS, which to me is similar to Pele when he came over to the North American Soccer League, the NASL of the 70s, to play for the New York Cosmos. Now, the Cosmos, if you recall, that was a 30-for-30, where you had he, Franz Breckenbauer, Giorgio Canalia, where that was just a spectacle, where they played their games in Yankee Stadium, as well as the old Giant Stadium, and how they were rock stars, a lot of it because of Pele, but because of the stars of that team and how it tried to catapult soccer into our consciousness. Will this have the same impact, knowing that Lionel Messi, for everything I just mentioned and all the accolades and everything that had just transpired only in the last six months, him winning that World Cup, etc., and now going to be a part of the MLS, is he going to have that same impact? I think to a certain degree he will, and considering he's going to play in Inter-Miami in that locale and that part of the world with the Latin American, South American, just everything that permeates that area and how that could really be a boon for the sport in South Florida, but is that going to overtake the MLS for buildings to be sold out throughout the country? It probably will. And I don't have a finger on the pulse. Maybe I need to get somebody on to discuss that. And you know what? That's something that I'll work on to see if I could get a guest, whether it's a writer or someone who's in tune with that, about how Lionel Messi could really, I'm not going to say he's going to overtake America, but he could be a guy that could really infuse some life into the MLS for the average sports fan or the average soccer fan. Because the soccer fan, they're already invested. They're already know what Lionel Messi's all about and how he's going to enhance the MLS and into Miami, etc. That's going to be a given. And especially for that part of the country with all the Latin American and South American influx that is in the Miami area, of course, that's going to be, you would think, a slam dunk. Is it automatically a slam dunk? I don't know. Because I'm not a part of that whole dynamic when it comes to the MLS and soccer on a whole. But I do know Lionel Messi... And I do know what he's going to be able to bring to the table as far as his star power, as far as his legendary status, his immortal status, etc. But what that's going to do for the sport overall, that I can't answer. I could say from the surface, I'm sure it's going to be more of a plus than a minus, absolutely. But when he's going to start, how is this going to play in? I don't even know if Inter-Miami even has... I know they've been working on a team with David Beckham and a stadium down there, etc. I don't know, is that going to start next year? And that just goes to show you how disconnected I am with the MLS. But I know how big of a star Messi is, and I know that it could be a tremendous impact for the league, for that area, etc. So, 
Now I have to roll up my sleeves, do my due diligence to see and really go down the rabbit hole as to what type of effect Lionel Messi will have on American shores or in the American landscape and what he could do to soccer, almost similar to what Pele did, although that was fleeting, back in the 70s with the North American Soccer League, with the Cosmos, and how that was just all the buzz during that period of the 70s Will Messi have that same cultural and just overall impact for the league and the game of soccer here stateside in the 2020s? And now doing my good people, another episode just about in the books. Thank you so much for stopping by. Your participation is never, ever taken for granted. And if you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, review, throw me a few stars, write a review. All that doing will increase the visibility of the podcast, as I mentioned at the very top. So please, if you could do that, I'll be more than thankful and grateful for your cooperation and participation in that regard. If you want to hit me up on any of my socials, you could do so at the following on YouTube at J Reels, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, the J Reels Podcast, Twitter, J Reels One, just a number. And if you want to hit me up with a question, comment, or suggestion, you could do so at the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. I'll be more than happy to follow up with you guys and gals. And then lastly, if you want to contribute to this endeavor, you could do so by going to my Patreon page, P as in Paul, A-T as in Tom, R-E-O-N as in Nancy.com, slash the J Reels Podcast. Whatever you want to put forth, we'll go 100% to this production, the upkeep of the website, the equipment, etc. to make this experience from this microphone into your earbuds, headphones, or speakers that much more pleasurable, enjoyable, informative, entertaining, because whether you do or do not know, this is what I love to talk about people. It's in the blood, it's in the DNA since birth, day one. You know I got you covered. Because where else are you going to hear everything that I just discussed in one podcast, in one hour? What other podcast has that? With the passion, fire, fury, energy, with my thoughts, feelings, opinions, analysis, critique, praise on anything and everything. That happens. On the world of the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, boxing ring, octagon, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are... The J Reels Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx to South Beach to South Central to South Pacific and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>